Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Chang Liu. She is an applied research scientist at Georgian Partners. In a previous post, I highlighted early tools for privacy-preserving analytics, both for BI and business analytics, and also for machine learning. One of the tools I mentioned in that post is an open source project for SQL-based analysis, and it adheres to state-of-the-art differential privacy. And since most of BI actually relies on SQL database, this pretty much allows companies to start doing BI and business analytics in a differentially private manner. But then what about machine learning? So I didn't have space to point out this in my previous post, but it turns out that uh, there's a history of interplay between differential privacy and machine learning research. And so I wanted to uh, sit down with Chang because she is focused on uh, making this research available to practicing data scientists. So specifically, they're building tools that uh, will make it easy for data scientists to use some of these techniques from differential privacy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. And also note that Chang Liu will be speaking at Strata New York this coming September. Chang Liu of Georgian Partners, welcome to The Data Show. Thank you for having me. So I see from your background that you studied operations research, and I'm a big fan of operations research. As part of my uh, studies as an undergrad, I took some courses, you know, kind of linear programming, quadratic programming. Mm -hmm. So for our audience who aren't familiar with operations research, which I think is kind of one of these underappreciated branches of applied mathematics. So right. uh, what what exactly did you focus on in grad school? So, um, so some of the projects I worked on particularly are vehicle rotting problems. Essentially, what it entails is that we can model a lot of the real life problems. Um, so vehicle rotting in specific, you can think of um, Uber, Uber cars, for example. Right. So in a city, you have a pool of cars and you have a pool of users who are requesting rides. So we have all of these resources. How can we actually maximize the number of people who can get assigned cars? And what is the most efficient ways for cars to drive people around? So essentially, this is the optimization problem that we wanted to solve, which means that we take all of these resources and the different constraints for uh constraints as in uh, which people need to get to what places. And we essentially put that into a big mathematical model and uh, we try to optimize it to find the optimal way of using these resources. And uh, Chang, uh, what do OR people use as far as software tools these days? Well, so there are a few toolkits or a few um, 
I would say frameworks perhaps. So one um, one is uh, Cplex Studio that's provided by IBM. There's also Groby, and I know Google also has an open source uh functionalities that's called OR tools, Google OR tools. And these are packages that can use with um, any sorts of API. So you can code your problems in C++, Java, Python, and you can call on these packages to help you solve these optimization problems. So why is it that uh, OR has not become part of the standard toolkit of uh, industrial data scientists? Is it because the tools are obscure? Because the tools you mentioned are not probably not familiar to most people, right? So there's no equivalent of scikit-learn or TensorFlow. (laughs) I would say operations research and data science is sort of two separate uh, tracks um, in in operations research but the problems you the problems you can solve with OR are very practical right yeah mm-hmm. but I, I so I would say the, the problems that OR is trying to solve and the problems that data science is trying to solve are sort of parallel there are, there are two sets of different problems and there are definitely ways and I've seen more and more research on how to combine, uh, you know, OR techniques in machine learning. So there are actually a lot of constraint optimization problems in machine learning and there's, and vice versa, right? So how to use machine learning to help learn um, how to solve, solve some optimization problems, for example. So I, so I think like we're really starting to see this merge and this hybrid, uh, and we are starting to see these two communities coming together and sharing some of that knowledge. But I think that uh, for the listeners out there, if you want to take on a a massive, massive project, <laughs> project, yeah. uh, uh-huh. b- build a nice open source toolkit for uh, optimization. Yep. Well, so Google OR tools, I think it's a great way to start because it's open sourced and uh, it's free to use. It's free for the public to use. And um, there's a good community out there to uh, to support that package as well. So I think that's a really good way to start. You know, what I should try to convince you to do is, uh, is teach a uh, kind of a very practical uh, optimization or OR tutorial at one of my conferences. Oh yeah, that would be great. I, w- I would love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> For industry people, right? So where yeah, yeah. where mm-hmm. uh, they encounter a lot of these problems, probably, but they don't quite know how to tackle them. Yeah, that would be that would be great. Some o- o- other OR problems that I've seen that companies are trying to solve. Um, there's this publicity ads. So if if a retailer is is trying to publish this, um, you know, if you think of flyers or ad advertisements, and you have these spots for different um, different products. So how do you optimize this spacing, and how, where do you put which kind of product? So this is all some sort of optimization or problems that I think a lot of retailers are facing too, and could be very practical. So then, uh, do this, uh, do things like uh, bandit algorithms? Do they start going into? Are those things that uh, OR people study too? Oh yeah, absolutely. So there's lots of uh, optimizations within the uh, bandit. So there's. There is a field of stochastic optimization. I think that's where sort of the bandits fits in as well. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, when you start getting into that kind of exploring, exploring, exploiting, then you start kind of 
also entering the whole area of reinforcement learning, right? That's true. So uh, there is some classical um, AI techniques, for example, AI planning, that I think is very similar to reinforcement learning. There's, um, so we're trying to approximate the goal state with some sort of heuristic function. So I think there's definitely lots of similarities and there's definitely lots of knowledge that can be shared between the two communities. Yeah. So then at some point, uh, you graduated from school and uh, mm-hmm. you you started working at Georgian Partners. So by the way, uh, uh, right. d- br- uh, describe briefly for our audience what it is mm-hmm. that you do at Georgian Partners, which is a, a venture capital fund. That's right. So we're a venture capital fund and we function a little bit differently in the sense that so I should mention that we invest in AI softwares across North uh, North America, but we have a what we call an applied research or the impact team on uh, at Georgian, and we sort of see ourselves as an extended arm to all of our portfolio companies, and we do a lot of applied research or moonshot collaboration projects with our companies, meaning that, you know, these startups, uh, most of the time, they don't have enough resources or they have to focus on production. But in order to get their next step up for their products, um, so we, we often collaborate together to really um, investigate or find out more creative ways to solve problems and really to help them get advantage over their competitors. And I guess this is a good way to introduce differential privacy. So the differential privacy was a, um, a topic that we collaborated with our, our companies because we saw that a lot of our companies had this problem, which we call the cold start problem. And this means that, so these software companies, they need data to build machine learning models. And often what happens is that when a new new customer come in, um, they have no data for this, cu- for this customer. So they have to wait for sometimes three months up to half a year to collect enough data before they can really uh, provide insights into or utility for their machine learning models. And during that time, maybe there's no revenue or if the model isn't good enough, then the companies may lose trust. So this is the cold start problem that we are seeing with a lot of companies. And so what we're trying really to leverage is that but these companies have prior or previous customers and they have data that have similar distributions to this new customer. So is there a way can we leverage the data from the other customers for this new onboarding customer. And of course, you can probably guess the problem is that um, there are privacy issues there when we're taking data from other customers and applying to new customers. And um, this is where we sort of started to exploring differential privacy and see how can we leverage these techniques to, uh, to really help with these privacy concerns. So at a high level, uh, let's say I'm a new customer. Mm -hmm. So you have some information about me, right? Because basically Mm -hmm. you're going to match me with existing customers. So I guess I forgot to mention is that all of our companies are uh, B2B companies, and which means that their customers is more like a Enterprise. another company. Enterprise. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So uh, a good example I can give you is um, one of our companies called Bluecore. So they provide 
marketing insights or customer retention insights. And their customers are, for example, Nike, Reebok, and maybe this new customer could be Adidas. And they we so we can imagine that they would share similar distributions. So that's how we can actually transfer the knowledge from existing customers to new customers. So in some ways, I think that uh, people in the recommendation space have this kind of notion as well, where you have a new user. You don't know much about the user, but uh, you have a few things that the user has done. Uh, let's say you're Netflix, right? So watch the few, exactly. watch, mm-hmm. watch the few movies. Then uh, what you can do is look at the movie database and use that mm-hmm. knowledge, use a knowledge graph from the mm-hmm. movie database and then kind of Absolutely. try to overcome the cold start problem there. But um, mm-hmm. let's say, let's see. So differential privacy. So as you say, the word privacy is part of this. So then mm-hmm. uh, what exactly is differential privacy and how does it work? Right. So differential privacy is really, so how I see it is more of a privacy measurement, and, um, but some others may define it more like a constraint. So when we're training machine learning models or any sort of algorithm, then so we, we've had lots of algorithms or lots of techniques before to preserve privacy. But one of the problems was that there was really no measure or there's no mathematical guarantees. We just intuitively, it seems like it's providing some privacy, but it's really hard to measure and there might be always attacks. So differential privacy is really a probabilistic guarantee that if you train a or if you if you if you manipulate this data set with some differentially private algorithm, then you have a probabilistic guarantee that the probability of recovering uh, the information from this data set is less than um, for a privacy budget that we often name epsilon. Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. uh, I think you hinted at historically how it uh, mm-hmm. came came about, right? Because because I yeah. think in the in the early days of machine learning, I think you can go back to maybe the Netflix price even, right? So, <laughs> uh, so people people said, well, uh, we can just anonymize the data. Exactly right. right. And so, so but the, uh, as uh-huh. you as you as you alluded to, uh, what differential privacy brings to the table is uh, basically. Uh, theoretical guarantees that actually uh, you've accomplished that. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, so, and it's great that you brought up anonymization because um, it's it's been shown many times that simple anonymization doesn't work, even though it seems like it provides some guarantee, some privacy guarantee. But uh, there's there's been lots of cases where we, we've shown we've seen that it does not work because we can actually infer information from other databases. And uh, I guess like one really famous example is that is this Netflix uh, example. So they publish, so they anonymize the users, and then they publish this data set on on users' preferences. And well, they were saying that oh, we've anon- we've taken away all the personally identifiable information, we've anonymized everything. So there's this is a private data set. But however, um, a lot of so people have been what people have been able to do is that they could cross-reference it to the IMDB dataset, which is also an open dataset. And they've been able to see how 
so I guess like intuitively, so if you rate similar things on Netflix, you probably rate them similarly on IMDb. So what people were able to do is actually to reverse engineer those information back. And even though the uh, the PIIs were taken away and there were anonymization, but people were still able to identify the particular users and what they rated things on Netflix. And so, so this is actually a really good motivation for differential privacy, which it's not, um, it, it actually provides a really rigorous measure of privacy. Yeah, actually, I think of uh, so uh, differential privacy as part of this class of privacy preserving techniques, mm-hmm. you know, which includes federated learning, homomorphic encryption, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. Mm-hmm. But then uh, one of the things that uh, 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 the way I think of it, too, is that because it's analytics, to, you know, there's yeah. two general types, right? So there's the uh, analytics to make better decisions of so BI. And then mm-hmm. analytics for automation, so machine learning. Right. So uh, on the on the BI side, one of the things that people f- sometimes forget, so they think of privacy as uh, as something that they have to protect uh, themselves from attackers. But actually, mm-hmm. also privacy, you have to protect yourselves from uh, your <laughs> the people mm-hmm. inside the company, right? Because basically, yeah, yeah, you, mm-hmm. you, you want to be able to guarantee your customers that uh, employees may not be, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, looking through their private data. Yeah, that's that's. But but, but uh, then on, but, right. but then on the other hand, you still want to be able to do analysis on the data. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, exactly the the the, po- the the power of differentially te- uh, private techniques is that what it sort of provides is that we can still maintain the distribution or the information that we need over the entire population without specifically and identifying any single uh, data point from that population. Yeah, so I, actually, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Rice Lab. So at, at least, uh-huh. for, at least for BI, which yeah. which for the most part is SQL SQL. Mm-hmm. So they did uh, put out a project which allows you to do differentially private SQL queries against any database. Mm-hmm. For yeah. for, mm-hmm. for most uh, standard queries. So this is a collaboration they did with Uber, and mm-hmm. it's an open source project. You can put yep. it on top mm-hmm. of any SQL database. And so mm-hmm. there, there you go. At least, at least for SQL, uh, you have a you have something to use if you want to do differential privacy. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So machine learning, on the other hand, um, it, you know, you want to extract information patterns, uh, yep. and then uh, differential privacy, as you described, it gives you the, uh, theoretical guarantees that you can preserve privacy in the process. So mm-hmm. one of the things that uh, one of the ways I think about this, I don't know if you feel the same way, Chang, is that mm-hmm. uh, differential privacy at some level, uh, what you're doing is injecting random noise into your data set. Yes, that's 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 absolutely correct. That's exactly how differentially private differentially private techniques works, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, mm-hmm. so so on the machine learning side, so you can think of it as. Maybe first you have raw data, then you clean it, then mm-hmm. you then you use some mechanism, I don't know, either an exponential mm-hmm. or, or Laplacian mechanism to generate mm-hmm. a noisy model out of the data. Yep, that's absolutely right. So um, in in the literature or in the uh, in the community of differential private techniques, so there is actually multiple ways of accomplishing it. Um, we can either inject noise directly at 
the uh, input data data level or while we're training a model. So while we're so we can also inject noise to the gradients, which so at every iteration we're computing the gradients, so we can inject some sort of noise. Or we can also inject noise in the aggregation level. So if you think if we're doing some sort of ensembles, uh, so we can inject noise there. And we can also inject noise at the output level. So after we've trained the model and we have our vectors of weights, um, then we can also inject noise directly to the weights. So that's kind of like an objective perturbation. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, uh, the people listening here who are doing machine learning are going, yeah, uh, that's uh, great, Chang. I can inject noise <laughs> at, any, at any stage of the mm -hmm. model building process, as you described, but how do I know this model is any good? Uh, so in so, terms of so in terms performance, of, yeah, yeah. So maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, yeah, yeah. You you were <laughs> able to inject noise, but now this I've got a crappy model. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the trade-offs for differential privacy. So if you think about injecting noise to to a machine learning. Uh, training cycle and intuitively it actually makes sense to because we've injected noise we expect the performance to go down and so this is why a lot of uh, the current literature studies very rigorously the different algorithm because the the noise that we inject it's related to the algorithm that we're performing and it's also so it's related to the sensitivity of that particular algorithm and so if we can get a tighter bound on how sensitive this algorithm is, then it's eventually we could decrease the amount of noise that we inject. And the other thing uh, I like to point out is that I mentioned before that there's this privacy budget called Epsilon. So the noise is also directly related to this Epsilon or this privacy budget. So it, it also depends on how people, how comfortable people are with this uh, privacy budget, which means that eventually, so the, the smaller it is, then the more privacy you have. And of course, the more noise that you have to inject. So this is sort of a trade-off between how private you want your algorithm to be versus how, um, how accurate or how, how well your model performs. By the way, this epsilon, since you are yep. an, since you are an OR person, you've <laughs> yeah. introduced another parameter for me to optimize and tune. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, but the other thing too, Chang, is that uh, for the practicing data scientists out there, right? So you you don't necessarily want to get overwhelmed by tuning and uh, the fact that you're injecting noise because you have to also keep in mind what your business metric is. And so maybe maybe the machine learning metric is going down, but the overall business metric stays flat. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And also keep in mind that I think as I mentioned before, so a use case is to because because you've we've done differential privacy now it sort of opens the door to a lot a variety of other applications so perhaps now we can actually uh, because we have this differential privacy perhaps we can actually aggregate data or aggregate models and by sharing data for all the customers then you can potentially see a lift in the actual performance because of differential privacy that we were able to aggregate the data together and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, at the end of the day, that's that's ex precisely the area you should mm -hmm. focus on because uh, right. really, 
forget about differential privacy if you're just doing machine learning uh you don't actually even know if the model you're getting is quote unquote the true model so the fact right. <laughs> the fact that you're injecting noise uh, you might say well i'm deviating from the true model well i don't know to begin with what the true mo- <laughs> what the true model is <laughs> yeah and there there could be a chance that it actually makes your model more general because uh, essentially, when models memorize your training data, it could be due to overfitting. So actually injecting all of these noise may actually try to get you away from overfitting and, and actually get you a more general model. Which actually uh, is an interesting point. And so one of the things that people want are models that aren't overfit, that are robust. And mm-hmm. and so, uh, of course, nowadays, particularly with deep learning, you hear a lot about adversarial attacks against machine learning right so mm-hmm. so yeah. may- maybe the fact that you are doing differential privacy uh mm-hmm. maybe you are uh, in the process building more robust models that are more secure yeah that's that's uh that's definitely one of the uh premise of the differentially private techniques as well mm-hmm. so we've talked about differential privacy we kind of described uh kind of the broad in broad strokes what it is and uh, the steps of the model building process where you might inject noise. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the main question for our listeners is, (laughs) that's great, but I don't really want to think about this, is how accessible is differential privacy now? Is it built into the tools that I'm using? Or do I have to roll my sleeves and build this myself? (laughs) So this... I, I would say we're still in quite an early stage of differential privacy, especially applied to machine learning. I understand that it already exists for, as you mentioned before, for um, for SQL. And so there has been some papers published by Google on some differentially private techniques for what they've called the private SGD and the uh, Pate methods. And these are actually available open source codes on GitHub. And so, however, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's more meant for research or academic package. And, um, and what we're trying to do at Georgian actually is uh, we're also trying to develop a open source package for people to use. And I guess, ironically, it's called Epsilon. So our, our package is called Epsilon. And it's, it's mainly because we've seen all of these companies having the same problem and we've applied the same techniques over and over. So what we're trying to build is a, um, a, a package that people, people can use. And essentially, it will really be just like calling... It will be as simple as, for example, scikit-learn. So you can build a model, you can just call differentially private logistic regression, for example. And so this is what, because we see so much potential for differential privacy and we haven't seen a great tool set out there. And this is why we're trying to build some such things. So the... On the other hand, uh, uh, working data scientists already use and love certain uh, uh, machine learning libraries. So how will mm-hmm. Ep- how will Epsilon fit into their toolkit? Do they uh, do they still mm-hmm. get to use their favorite machine learning library? 
I well, so it it will be a different library, but we're we're trying to make it. Uh, simple use, I guess, <laughs> but it will be a different library because how the entire process of neural injecting is within the training of your actual model. So, and there's specific preconditions and parameters for differentially private techniques that it's it won't be a you, a data scientist won't be able to just train logistic regression out of scikit learn and then apply differentially differential privacy, for example. But I guess like those are also options. So Chang, what about if I get to train my model in my mm -hmm. own library, my favorite library? I don't know what mm -hmm. that would be, PyTorch or or yes. or Scikit-Learn or mm -hmm. uh, MLib and Spark, right? Yep. And mm -hmm. then uh, somehow there's another library when I'm ready. Okay, so this is the model I want. Mm -hmm. And then somehow this other library can just I guess I can go to this other library and kind of it. This other library will have a similar API as my existing library, and then with uh, with, mm -hmm. my, with minor with minor changes, uh, mm -hmm. with my with uh, extra parameters that I feed into it, I'm ready to go. Although I think that's kind of awkward, right? So you might <laughs> you you might as well. But I guess uh, at mm -hmm. the end of the day, this epsilon yeah. that you folks are developing. Mm -hmm. You probably should have an API very similar to one of these popular machine learning libraries. That's exactly right. So, so uh, as of now, it looks um, so we're trying to build something very similar to Scikit-Learn. So, because this is, I guess, like one of the very popular and very easy to use uh, packages. So, we we're trying to mimic the same. So similar to Scikit-Learn, so that it's it's easy for people to use. And I guess the other reason why some sort of add-on package may not work is because a lot of these differentially private technique needs uh, specific tuning while training. So you know, like you may need specific learning rates based on the different level of, of privacy budget that you're choosing. So this is why it may not be the best idea to have it as an add-on. So then uh, mm -hmm. the, the question is, uh, the, so scikit-learn is great. That's, mm -hmm. uh, the, that covers a lot, but it doesn't cover deep learning or XGBoost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I so what what we're trying to build, I guess, is um, it's a similar interface, but we we would like to build all these different models for example, differentially private logistic regression, differentially private support vector machines. Um, there's also just private SGD, so uh, injecting noise to the gradients, so right. that any any gradient SGD based method whether it's deep learning or other models, can actually use this so that while you're training, you can just call this private SGD. And so then uh, what if you were to predict, so how, how long before the differential privacy and some of these other related techniques become standard practice? Oh, <laughs> I guess uh, I guess the tool yeah. <laughs> uh, it will it will it will depend on when the tools get mm -hmm. uh, get there, right? So yeah, so it's it's quite interesting. So because a lot of these big players, so you mentioned before Uber, so Apple, Google, all of these big players are using differential privacy. So this is actually becoming um, something that people know more and more. 
And um, as we talked to some startups, and they're also considering differential privacy for while building their tools. And I don't have a precise answer to your question, but I I do believe that it, because it's very powerful and it's gaining a lot of attention. So we're definitely on the rise of differential privacy. I think on the BI side, right? Yeah. So Apple, Apple mm-hmm. and Google already are doing kind of BI business analytics. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, counts and 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 summary and summary statistics. Yeah, yeah summary mm-hmm. statistics yeah. using That's different right. differential privacy. And then with this tool from Rice Lab that allows you to uh, do the same thing on any SQL database. I think mm-hmm. on the on the BI side that we will get there sooner. Uh, yeah. on, on the ML side. I think the fact that uh, a lot of people are just a lot of companies, frankly, are still getting mm. started on ML. That's right. So, yeah. and and this is a kind of a step of a step above the normal in terms of sophistication, mm. right? Yeah, that's so, right. So mm-hmm. it may take a while. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's really hard for me to really predict how long it's going to take, but I I have really great hopes for this field, though. On the other hand, yeah. uh, the, on the regulatory side, right? So because there's uh, uh, regulations coming out of the EU, GDPR, the California, mm-hmm. the California yeah. Privacy Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is kind of a strong call for analytics and or data products that are privacy preserving. So maybe this will encourage people to take the plunge sooner rather than later. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think the number of startups that I'm seeing that's using differential privacy has re- has increased exponentially in, in the past year or so. So now uh, differential privacy for machine learning, as we discussed, it's possible now. But uh, what are some of the more bleeding edge things that researchers are are working on? So there's always more. So as we discussed before, um, because of this noise injecting, we may lose some performance of the model. So there's uh, lots of research on still analyzing sensitivities of algorithms. Um, I, so, and I've also seen different different definitions of uh, differential privacy. So some researchers have argued that the current definition is too rigorous and we may not need that of a rigorous uh, definition. So I've seen I've seen some research in other areas as to defining a more relaxed, definition of differential privacy. And um, another very exciting part is that we're starting to see some uh, generative approaches to differential privacy, which is also quite interesting because then, so if we if we do some uh, differentially private embedding, for example, that, that may allow us to actually publish synthetic data sets that are differentially private. And this will just really um, provide us with a whole new area of privacy. Because currently there's, even with differential privacy, there's, we can't really publish data sets. But if we can publish differentially private synthetic data set that mimics the distribution of our data set, it could be a very powerful tool, I think. So are these, uh, these generative uh, approaches, are they, super, are they supervised? Um, what do you mean? Or uh... <laughs> so the goal here is: here's a database, yeah, and here's a differentially private copy of this database, which has mm-hmm. exactly the same distribution. 
yeah, so I guess what what they're working on, and I'm not an expert in this field what's uh, at all. But so from what I, I understand is they're trying to learn um, some sort of embeddings of this data set. And while while they're they're learning these embeddings uh, in a differentially private way, and then using that to generate synthetic data sets. I see. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting work, even though it's a it's very very early theoretical work, and I, I guess you probably know any sort of generative approach will require lots of data. But I, I guess like this this idea is quite interesting, and I I really like to see how how this may take us in the future. Wow! So this has been a great tour of, uh, of <laughs> kind of an emerging field that. Uh, you know, it's uh, probably getting to the point where uh, you in the audience should start uh, investigating and uh, pay attention to uh, kind of the emerging open source projects, including Epsilon. Hopefully, uh, we get to the point where uh, these become uh, usable libraries and that differential <laughs> privacy is just something that's part of, uh, of a data scientist uh, toolkit. Thank you, Chang. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.